Welcome to the Center for Sport and Human Rights podcast series focusing on the sport-related impacts of COVID-19 on children. I'm Mary Harvey, CEO of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Today, our guests discuss the important role that sport plays in the lives of children with disabilities and observations on the specific impacts that the restriction in access to sport is having. Thank you for joining us today, and here's your host, Kirsty Burroughs. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Center for Sport and Human Rights podcast series, focusing on the sport-related impacts of COVID-19 on children. Today's episode will focus on how the absence of sport caused by the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting children with disabilities. Before we jump into this discussion, it's very important to mention that children with disabilities is an umbrella term representing an extremely diverse population with varying impairments and support requirements. I'd like to welcome to this discussion Dr. Sherry Blowett, three-time Paralympian and Assistant Professor in Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School, and Charles Nyambe, President and Managing Director of the Special Olympics in the Africa region. Sherry, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kirsty. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, too. We're delighted you could join us. So my first question to you, many children with disabilities already face significant barriers in exercising their right to sport. And a recent UN study has shown that children with disabilities may be even more disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So with this in mind, I'd love to ask you both when when discussing the effect of COVID-19 on children with disabilities access to sport and sporting opportunities, what are the biggest issues to consider? Um, Maybe I can go to you first, Sherry. Yeah, sure. Sounds great. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the effect of the pandemic globally has impacted access to sport and physical activity in so many ways. And of of course, um, that impact is also seen for children with disabilities. Um, And I think for children with disabilities, the impact is probably in a few different areas. Um, You know, sport is such an important tool for physical activity and health. Um, But also when you think about children and adolescents, it's also such an important time when we're setting our health behaviors and thinking about lifestyle and um, the behaviors that will set into adulthood. Um, So I think that that having reduced access to sport um, for young people and particularly young people with disabilities um, is, is a major challenge. Um, many people with disabilities uh, across different disability types, we know that there's less access to sport and less likelihood of adopting physical activity behavior and engaging in physical activity as a lifestyle pattern in adulthood. And we know that many of those trends are set when we're young. Uh, so I think that you know the impact to children with disabilities now is certainly um, a consideration, but also then how that impacts them into adulthood. Um, And I'd also say that for children with disabilities, I think that the physical health component is something that we have to think about, but also um, particularly for um, disability, you know, sport and physical activity and opportunities to engage in sport have a much larger impact um, related to personal development and opportunities for mentoring, both from adults as well as from um, other young people and peers. And I think that um, all young people, um, you know, learn the ropes in terms of things like resiliency and critical life skills from sport. But I think that impact is even more important for young people with disabilities. Um, And in many ways, the access to sporting opportunities 
really offers um, children with disabilities the opportunity to really develop that confidence and positive self-identity and really transcend the stigma and stereotypes that are placed on them by society. And having that athletic identity is so important um, for really, you know, proving people wrong in terms of the stigma that that we have um, and the lowered expectations that unfortunately many um, children with disabilities face. So I think that the impact is probably broad in terms of both physical health, but also um, self-identity, uh, resiliency, you know, self-confidence and all those skills that are developed when we're young. Mm, thank you, Sherry. That's a really, really interesting point to highlight. You know, not only are we seeing the current impact that an absence or a reduction in physical activity may be having on children with disabilities, but also some of these future considerations and, the, and these concerns, as you say, with regards to setting health behaviours are, are hugely important to take on board as well. I'd like to come to you now, Charles, and, and um, as Sherry mentioned, there's, a, there's a, a multitude of impacts that a reduction in sport may be having for children with disabilities around the world. But one of the other critical areas that we're concerned about is the, the, the mental well-being aspect um, with children, you know, in lockdown around the world or, or, or being increasingly isolated. Perhaps you might want to say a few words on, on this area. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, to add on to uh, Sherry's point, firstly, uh, I want to address the point of intellectual disabilities because that's the area in which I, I, I specialize. So children with intellectual disabilities, um, in the first place, most of them, according to statistics, have been, you know, isolated or, you know, they've, they've lived and they've, they've got, you know, experiences of isolation and discrimination. And, and this discrimination extends to even their own family members, especially um, I'm speaking from experience in, in the Africa region. So the COVID-19 has increased this and worsened this isolation. One athlete that we spoke to during COVID-19 and spoke, spoke to the athlete on the phone said the following says, Welcome to our world. Uh, we have been, what you're experiencing today, this has been our life all along. When sport came along, we left this type of living and joined you, uh, joined the community. And today, we are, we are happy that you are experiencing what we've experienced in the past. So... With COVID-19 and this isolation, this isolation that uh, children with intellectual disabilities are experiencing, uh, it, it is um, obvious that the coaches are not available, you know, because, you know, there's, you can't, there's distancing that is required. So we engage in family members and caregivers in productive activities has become very, very critical uh, than ever. You know, helping them to understand the value of pro providing continued support to children and making them understand that, you know, uh, that they too, they are the caregivers, um, need to stay positive and need to, to ensure that uh, the, the environment is conducive for positive productivity. You know, with visits restricted, this education process has, has become more important and uh, and we are we are currently you know focusing on on making contact with caregivers as our conduit to the to to the children with intellectual disabilities 
and help them receive activities while in isolation. Sport obviously has made so much change in the past in terms of uh, confidence, self-confidence, and and we've seen them even going to you know you know leadership later on uh, because they've received they've displayed so much confidence on the field, which which moves on transcends onto you know. Uh, to to the community and other things they do in their day-to-day life. Thank you so much, Charles. You've highlighted really beautifully some of the social benefits of sports participation for, for children with disabilities and, in, and indeed all children. And I think it's a really, really important point to note because it also gives us an indication of some of the key challenges now that that access to sport and that sporting network has been significantly reduced. And I wonder if either of you have any examples of of how sports organisations have potentially uh, developed programmes or initiatives, perhaps online campaigns, to continue to engage and provide that access to sport throughout the pandemic for for children with disabilities. Yeah, maybe maybe let me me give an example of what, what we did. In Africa, as soon as the the pandemic was, uh, you know, declared, and then everybody went into isolation, countries went into these lockdowns. Um, we we the entire organization had a had a concern regarding how are we going to address you know the issue of children having activities while they're at home. Um, so right there, in uh, digital digital you know access was the, the, the discussion at the table. Um, but the world is different. In certain parts of the world, it's easy to access digital, you know, and internet and so on and so forth. And the in- infrastructure that surrounds uh, digital was considered to. So what we did in order for us to have some, a kind of a accurate, you know, um, measurement, we did a survey to, uh, among our athletes in the Africa region, we have, we have currently 300,000 athletes with intellectual disabilities. But children, among that, we have about half of that is about is, is children with intellectual disabilities. And we, the results were that uh, 10%, only 10% had digital access of children with intellectual disabilities. So with that, though digital was was the the, the 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 issue we 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 embarked on the creation of what we call fit five we call them fit five health and fitness cards you know cards that you you know they're very small a5 with uh, mainly you know activities and pictures in in pictures on the front and health messages on the on the back There'll be about each stack will have about will have will have about 15 cards on it, stuck to a lanyard, and an athlete would just put it around their neck, and you know go from first card, second card, doing activities at home. So those fit five cards became very very you know you know uh, popular too, especially to to our those that did not have digital access. The few that had digital access. We were able to send this these uh, electronic, you know, videos and and messages to uh, documents to the athletes to follow. Then there was also um, in in one of the countries the, the 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 Ministry of Education adopted the Special Olympics Fit Five cards and and played them on national television at a certain time. 
So children would gather and look at those fit, fitness, fit, fit five activities and emulate and, and perform those activities at home. And then there was also radio access. Some of the countries went into you know, radio access and we used partners such as UNICEF. UNICEF was a great partner um, in, in terms of funding these initiatives. And uh, so we've, we've, uh, those are the initiatives that we took up in terms of keeping these children active at home with their supervisors being their parents and their siblings and the, the community, close community around them, helping them. And we monitored, the coaches only called in and monitored that they're doing at least two activities a week. What a fantastic initiative. And, and you're so right, Charles. I mean, at the moment, it feels like we're all being put, pushed more and more online. But as you say, there are so many other mediums um, through which to engage with children and to, and to ensure that we can continue to 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 overcome some of these key challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic has has put to us with the limitation of being able to do so much face to face but 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 that that doesn't mean that that there aren't other ways through which we can engage with children and and getting family and friends on board as well I think is 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 really crucial what about you Sherry any any initiatives that you might like to share mm-hmm. yeah I'd love to also share some examples um, from our environment you know I day to day work as a, a physician within rehabilitation medicine and sport medicine here in Boston. Um, and when the COVID pandemic became became more severe here, uh, which was initially last March, April timeframe, you know, we had to be really creative and innovative and think about how to pivot quickly um, into other offerings that would offer the same opportunity for physical activity and social connection for um, children with disabilities um, and young people. And, um, you know, our context is a little different. Um, I'd say here in the Boston area in the U.S., uh, there's general, you know, generally fairly good access to internet connectivity. Um, But one consideration that I think would be interesting to discuss here is, you know, how do you think about accessibility? for children and adolescents with disabilities who um, are hoping to engage in sport opportunities via a virtual platform. And that's something that we certainly had to um, grapple with and learn about and ensure that we were doing everything we can to could to ensure that accessibility. Um, we pivoted to begin um, to do several things, um, offering things like uh, individual, individualized one-on-one um, strength and conditioning classes and coaching sessions, um, uh, other offerings that were more social in nature, so group fitness classes, for example. Um, several are, of our teams, uh, for example, our, our youth sled hockey team, um, you know, obviously, because the pandemic was quite bad here, you know, there was there was no opportunity to get people together in person, even for practice. And so, but we wanted to keep the team connected and fit. And so we pivoted to, you know, getting them together regularly via a virtual platform in order to um, still have access to their coach and access to one another and also to do some basic strengthening and conditioning and fitness programming, um, even though it was off ice, right, and in their homes. Um, and then along the access issue, um, you know, this is something that that um, certainly disproportionately impacts children and adolescents with disabilities. You know, if, if you're trying to pivot to a virtual platform, you know, what are you doing, for example, to ensure accessibility for those who are blind or have low vision? 
um, or individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing, um, or those who may have a communication disability, for example, a young person with cerebral palsy um, and dysarthria. Um, so, so thinking about, you know, the way in which virtual opportunities can reduce barriers for many, but also increases the barriers um, in certain for certain for people with certain types of disabilities um, and trying to troubleshoot and be really creative about how to um, make the virtual programming in and of itself more universally accessible. Um, and that was a, a huge consideration. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd say is that, um, you know, accessibility virtually is a big challenge, particularly for young people who may have any type of um, learning disability or um, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, where it can be quite difficult to engage um, via that more, uh, you know, online-based platform. And, um, you know, thinking about different mechanisms to maintain that engagement was also a significant consideration. So, so I'd say I think that our challenges were a bit different than um, what Charles described in Africa. But I think both of us, you know, have described different ways in which you have to tailor the intervention towards people with disabilities dependent on that environment. Um, and I think that's a, that's just a, a really important point. Indeed, Sherry, I think another great point, uh, you know, we are being pushed more and more online, but it's really crucial to ensure that, that, that the opportunities that we are developing, you know, especially at the moment related to, to, to overcome some of the key challenges of, of, of COVID-19 and, and the lack of face-to-face -face interaction, um, it's important that they are all accessible. And we actually just did a podcast on eSport, um, which is sort of growing exponentially all across the world, especially during the pandemic. And um, and we talked about inclusion and representation. But yes, accessibility is, is, is absolutely crucial. It's probably a point we should take back to that, to that conversation as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, let, 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 me, let me just, in, in, uh, just to add on to what Cherry just shared regarding virtual virtual activities and virtual learning that uh, you know with the population that we deal with the children with intellectual disabilities majority of, uh, a, a large percentage of them will will not be able to you know to to to, to listen to read and to be able to you know to 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 use virtual learning uh, because of their um, intellectual disabilities and they will require you know, supervision. So without supervision or without this caregiver being with them and assisting them to access, um, you know, material virtually, it's impossible for them to do so. Uh, so when we talk about virtual access, it 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 means it's a, it's a certain percentage of those uh, children with their, with the ability to to access that and they've been trained to be able to do that. So even that cannot satisfy the entire population. Even if, even if we had to have, you know, the access for everybody, they still, you still will have challenges in terms of virtual learning. Completely agree with you there, Charles. I think one of the key messages I'm hearing from you and Sherry is, is the need to ensure tailored interventions. And effectively, there's no one size fits all solution that will work for everybody but that we need to really look at the requirements of, 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 of the children and of the athletes that we're, that we're looking to engage with throughout the pandemic and, and to see what best works for them. 
And and you mentioned, of course, as well, the importance of working with with carers and family. And this is something that I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about, um, because we know this is one of the key concerns. So recently, a study by Family Fund in the UK found that 93% of families responding uh, said the pandemic had negatively affected the health and well-being of their disabled or seriously ill child. The biggest reason cited being a reduction of, in health and social care support services. And indeed, another study conducted by the National Education Union found that 47% of respondents had significant concerns about the possibility of staff shortages caused by the pandemic. So I'd like to ask you both, how concerned are you with the loss or limiting of specialist staff members and coaches that provide that regular interaction, mentoring and therapeutic support systems? And how long lasting do you believe those effects might be? Yeah, thanks, Kirstie. I can I can kick that one off. Um, because I think my take on that question would probably come from a few different perspectives, one being from the sport perspective, but the other being from the health um, and medical perspective, given my my role as a physician. Um, you know, I'd say across the board, I think the disability community, both children as well as adults, um, and I, I think globally, um, has had a disproportionate impact um, because of the way that uh, providing care can often be somewhat complex and involve multiple parties. And I know that here in our environment, um, many people with disabilities who rely on personal care assistance or even a family member who may live outside the home but then come to the home to provide assistance really struggled um, because of concerns that were far-reaching. You know, of course, first and foremost is just simply exposure-related concerns and you know, the more people are out about in the community and then come into the home, you know, having concerns about um, exposure, you know, increased risk of exposure coming into the home. But then also, um, you know, another issue is that many people who do provide that hands-on care, um, you know, themselves may come from challenging environments and may not be able to work for a period of time or may have more difficulty accessing transportation for a period of time. Um, or may not even have the appropriate um, PPE um, and protective equipment or masks that they may need. And so that complex um, paradigm of care, I think, really broke down for many people, um, both adults as well as children. And it just it 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 created a very challenging situation, um, certainly during the initial COVID peak, but one that persists through the fall and winter and, and is again worsening, um, at least here in the US where numbers are ticking back up. Um, I have one um, athlete, young athlete that I know where she has a, um, she's a tetraplegic, has a significant spinal cord injury and requires, on, requires nurses to come into the home to assist with her activities of daily living, not to mention sport. And, um, and you know, would have, you know, maybe uh, I, I'm just, throw out a number, maybe five different nurses who would come on a different rotation to provide that hands-on care and to ensure that ensure that they were protecting her health, but also providing relief for the family. Um, and that system just totally broke down <laughs> during COVID. And I think that we have to recognize that when those types of systems break down, that then sport is, you know, the emphasis on sport or the ability for people to engage in sport and physical activity, it really starts to be deprioritized because people have to really, first and foremost, focus on their 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 primary health and just getting by through the day. 
Um, and so I think for children and adolescents with more significant disabilities where, um, where hands-on support is needed, um, I think, I think there have been profound impacts on health, but also, um, because of those impacts on health, therefore impact on their ability to participate in sport as well. Um, the other thing that we've seen is that, that of course, you know, many people with disabilities, different types of disabilities, um, you know, rely on healthcare services just to maintain adequate health. And because of how everything was shut down and a lot of elective type care was reduced um, throughout the time of the pandemic, um, people have just had difficulty accessing the care they need, you know, being able to go into a clinic, for example, for to talk about a medication refill or to receive a procedural intervention that they may need to promote health. Um, you know, all of those things have been more difficult. So I think I think when we think about carers and personal support that um, we can't really take a, peel apart the impact on health overall um, and then also the impact on sport and sport participation. Thank you, Sherry. It's, as you say, really, really broad, some of the considerations that we have to take into account here. Charles, can I come to you with the same question? Yeah. Firstly, you know, we, we in, in, in the Africa region especially, you know, Africa is, uh, is, is, is a, a, the continent of Africa has so diverse countries in that some of the countries can be compared to any you know, a community can be compared to any any community in the U.S. or in Europe, while others are really, really extreme and have, you know, these uh, very, very extreme poverty conditions. Um, so in some of these communities, when we made these interventions, when we're talking about Fit5 cards, it was irrelevant because, you know, the children were starving. So in order for us to... Uh, to provide, you know, support, we began an initiative of, you know, uh, joining the government initiative. The government had an initiative of distributing food packages to the children with disabilities. And what we did was to to join them and put their fitness cards in those in those packages and had a joint you know, distribution, and those were accepted. And uh, coming back to, to, to health, we received some, uh, you know, not information that uh, some of our countries and where there had to be a choice between a child with a disability and a child without a disability, in the same, looking for a same, same treatment, um, even those related to COVID, uh, sadly, they, in some medical, you know, medical practices, preferred to, to you know, provide service or serve the child without without a disability. And when we had those reports, they were very very damaging to our population, and that's why we had to do it very very you know widespread education about in terms of uh, you know protecting our 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 children from uh, um, to make sure that they're following the protocols uh, related to to COVID-19. Our key concern concerns is that in the absence of professional supervision at home because these athletes are not receiving 
obviously their family members and caregivers do not provide this sort of professional you know supervision at home so the children do not have that level of discipline by themselves to follow routine at home and you know health discipline and so on and so forth that that is provided when an expert is there with them so we've seen a deterioration of of you know health and also you know their their fitness generally because the supervision has also you know deteriorated so there, there are quite a number of challenges that we we faced because of you know uh, this absence of uh, uh, professional professional supervision to uh, to these children with with disabilities and uh, and also one other point that we noted especially in, again in africa or reference africa because of the diversity the lockdowns in in africa were in different stages there are countries that had very very responsible governments and they had really taken very very strict measures that the pandemic did not spread so widely and their citizens were protected but there are other countries that you know you know there there wasn't there was an absence of of uh, leadership and uh, therefore they our population was so much in danger and we did not receive any information or statistics or or you know data from such countries as to determine what kind of support or help you know they require so those are some of the challenges we've, we've faced during this pandemic and and uh, and several countries have countries have have, uh, have tried to resolve this differently and uh, but we continue we, we've developed protocols for our children from the from the special olympics international we developed protocols that that should be followed and we said if if your government is is uh, as an example if the government is less strict and but and you look you compare that with the special olympics uh, guide guidance to return to activities then you you pick the strictest of those which is the, the one for special olympics but if the government is more strict that's the one we 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 select to to follow uh, to ensure that uh, our our children are kept you know safe and 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 uh, have access to you know to to the support they need thank you thank you charles i mean you're right you've touched upon so many uh, hugely important areas i mean we're really seeing that the covid-19 pandemic is 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 also a child's a uh, child's rights crisis it's a it's a it's a crisis for children and it's we're also seeing how it's magnifying inequalities and and i think that there are uh, you know some some incredible lessons to be learned as well and some a fantastic example of what the special olympics is doing to to try and support um young people in this area um this is really i'm i'm learning so much and from from you both and and really fascinating discussions i'd i'd like to go to talk a little bit about um you know because we're seeing that uh, i mean sherry you yourself are an elite athlete having won a combined seven medals at three paralympic games um so you both have a wealth of experience also with charles with uh, also a basketball coach i understand uh, with the national team is that is that right charles yes that's right i coached national teams in uh, two national teams in zambia and also in uh, in namibia and i i I've coached the university of namibia uh, basketball and i was also a 
you know, an international FIBA basketball referee at one time. Um, so, so I've had vast experience in coaching and and uh, wow. and uh, also officiating uh, basketball. Yes. So your 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 experiences also as as athletes and as, and as a as a coach. I'd love to 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 hear um, how you think the pandemic has been affecting children and young athletes who have been training for for events such as the Paralympics or the Special Olympics and and what considerations should be taken into account for for return to play for those athletes. Sure. Um, I can kick it off. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there are certain sports um, that are more at the elite Paralympic level where we certainly see fairly broad participation by young athletes, uh, for example, Paralympic swimming or Paralympic track and field, where a good number of our athletes competing even at that elite level are, are quite young. And, um, you know, for for those who are are still young but have risen up to that more elite level of competition, um, you know, I think the biggest impact has been on disruption to their training and competition schedules and how that then carries over to other aspects of life. For example, you know, many athletes who may be uh, in high school age or approaching university, um, you know, will will make fairly big life decisions based on their um sports, you know, their sports cycle, their schedule, and targeting a big competition like the Paralympics. Um, you know, many may, many may step away from school even for a year or defer entry into college, for example. Um, and those are, those are big decisions that can have significant impact. Um, and so, you know, yes, it's, it's unfortunate and very difficult to think about having to defer training and competition for something like the Tokyo Paralympics. But it's also important to recognize that these young athletes are really struggling with broader life implications. Um, the other aspect that it impacts them is related to the financial implications, um, because certainly once athletes are elevating and getting into the sub-elite or elite level of competition, you know, many are, um, you know, supported by things like sponsorships or government support from a ministry of health or from a national team. And suddenly not having those resources because of a deferred season or um, having to step away from sport for a period of time because of COVID can be extraordinarily stressful to them from a financial standpoint as well. And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough or recognize um, here in the U.S., we did a survey of our um, Olympic and Paralympic athletes who were training for Tokyo um, at around the time when the games were postponed uh, for a year. And we asked them about what their stressors were. And of course, um, you know, the obvious ones related to having difficulty training and preparing for elite competition were noted. But one that was noted very prominently that we didn't expect um, was the financial impact um, and the the way that that caused stress that causes stress on um, young athletes um, and also mental health challenges for young athletes. Um, you know, not being able to make ends meet is a very stressful situation. Um, so I think that that the the um, impact on deferring these major competitions has been broad um, as it relates to return to play. You know, from the lens of the International Paralympic Committee, um, where I serve on the um, medical commission, you know, we've been very careful to remind the international sport community that that return to play considerations and relative risk um, 
in light of COVID is very, very individual to the athlete. Um, you know, on the para-sport side, um, we have some athletes that are certainly um, at higher risk of COVID. And for that reason, we need to be more careful and we need to go slower when we think about return to play. Uh, for example, athletes with fairly involved cerebral palsy where their respiratory system, system is impacted or athletes with uh, cancer history who um, may be on immunosuppressant medication. Um, so for those athletes, we certainly need to take great care and ensure that if we are to begin a return to play protocol, that, that it's in a safe environment and that the athlete is protected. Um, and we probably have to wait a little bit longer and go slower with that uh, return to play. Um, whereas for other athletes, the risk is probably, from a physical health standpoint, is probably about the same. Um, for example, a unilateral amputee athlete um, or an athlete with vision impairment. And so for those reasons, we can't make a bl blanket statement and say that all Paralympic athletes are at higher risk because it's simply just not the case. It has to be really considered on an on a individualized assessment. Um, so those, are the, those, I think, are some of the, the considerations that we're facing around um, sub-elite and elite athletes and athletes who are really pushing themselves and have big, big athletic goals and dreams in their lives and how um, COVID has impacted them um, and particularly our young athletes. Thank you, Sherry. Ch Charles, any points that you'd like to mention? So the, the current return to play that has been uh, the protocols that have been um, created in Special Olympics written down for every country, you know, it has been staggered and every country has a choice. Every country, depending on the level of the pandemic in their country, they select uh, what level of return to play they are at and when when that has been when when the that selection has been made it means uh, when you look at the protocol it means there are certain things they the certain things they can do and the certain restrictions that you must continue to keep and this is this is this this speaks also to to the country's uh, health 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 ministry protocols now return to activities so therefore will vary from country to country and we, we anticipate that you know the physical preparedness of of each athlete will be impacted by many factors you know which and and uh, which which of course be, the the major factor is that the level of the pandemic in the country we right now in the africa region we have a we have a few countries a, a couple of countries in which COVID-19, there's no, there's no infections anymore, no more new infections, though they continue to wear masks. So that specific country has returned to activities, you know, if, you know, fully complete in meaning that the individual sport and team sports are all, you know, the, the protocols without, without taking any, any precautions, except that uh, they continue to, you know, to, to sanitize and so on and so forth. So in my view, you know, post-pandemic, uh, less uh, when they, whenever that is going to be, when the entire globe is, receives a vaccine, or, or I, I still think that because of the the differences in in returning to activities, uh, one country, like the country I'm talking about in Africa right now, their athletes will have been more prepared than others who are still experiencing lockdowns right now. So 
in order to participate in international competitions in these elite elite games, I think there must there's need to be a period that is going to be you know uh, declared a period for every country to say now we have the pandemic under control so we're giving a period of six months for pre preparation in order for 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 athletes to participate in the next whatever whenever the next games are going to be and also i have to mention here that you know mental health is is more of a big concern as it takes time to repair and it needs experts to handle uh, most of these athletes that have been undergone this have have also gone to, through, you know, some you know mental challenges because of the isolation, and uh, some of them have have had a reversal in terms of their their treatment at home and that's through this isolation. So there will still be need. There will still, there will, there will be a need for this period in order for our experts to. Uh, find time and meet the athletes physical and work on their mental and physical well-being and, and, and in terms of bringing them to, to the level of, uh, you know, international competition again. It is a challenge and I think the way ahead the experts of sports must think twice uh, when, when, when declaring on opening, you know, opening up the the, the sports fraternity for competition. I know elite sports like basketball and, and other sports. Uh, the, I saw the NBA, they, they were in a bubble, so-called bubble. We can't afford to be, to put our athletes in a bubble. That's impossible because for Special Olympics, every four athletes, um, a bigger part, yes, every four athletes, every four children need one supervisor. So if you have a group of 20 children, you'll have to have, you know, five supervisors with them because of that, they, they have mental intellectual disabilities. So they have to be supervised. They need closer supervision by, by, by so, so that's the ratio that we follow. So it, it, is, it is a challenge and uh, we, we can't copy exactly what the elite world is doing right now. We have to stagger and we have to put other considerations in the return to play. It's going to be a little different. Thank you so much. And Sherry, Charles, I'd really like to say a huge thank you to you both for being here and for sharing your time and knowledge with us. We've really covered a whole breadth of topics during this podcast, you know, touching on really some of the fundamental rights of children and how these have been impacted by the pandemic. And then going really deep into some of the sports related impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on children with disabilities. And really such a fantastic discussion. I've certainly learned a lot myself. And I wonder if, if you would be happy to share with us one or two key messages um, for children with disabilities or for those who are caring with young children, young uh, athletes with disabilities that might help them to better navigate these strange times. So perhaps one or two key messages that they can take away. Sherry, I'll, I'll come to you first, if that's all right. Sure, sure. I'm happy to start. And, um, and first off, I'd like to say that I have also learned so much um, through this discussion. And Charles, I just thank you for... Um, all of the knowledge that you've given to us today um, more broadly, because we all we all continue to learn from one another um, in our various areas of work and in thinking about sport um, for children with disabilities. Um, you know, we've covered so many topics today. I think if we could distill it down, my key points would probably center around um, number one, um, reminding people out there, 
people who are listening today who are working with children and adolescents with disabilities that when you think about the impact of COVID, remembering that it's not just the sport, but for that, but that in this population, the sport means so much. Um, and the sport has impact very broadly um, in terms of physical health, uh, in terms of mental health and emerging from social isolation, and also in terms of self-identity um, and stigma reduction. And I think for most young people, and children with disabilities, you know, if you really drill down to it and talk to them about the impact sport has had on their life, it's it's very complex and so much of, and the biggest impact is really on those aspects of socialization and stigma reduction and the way that sport participation um, just helps, helps others to see their capabilities um, and helps to elevate them as someone in society who has a role to play and who can contribute and who has an autonomous voice and can achieve great things. And so, you know, the impact that COVID has had on, on sport um, and therefore on the lives of children with disabilities really far reaching. So when we think about interventions and how we move beyond this and how we get back on board with sport in a post COVID world, understanding the impact that it's had. Um, and that's far more than just canceling practice, right? It's <laughs> also all of those other aspects. So I think that's, that's the biggest um, key message I'd like people to take away. Thank you very much indeed, Sherry. And Charles, the same to you, one or two key recommendations or, or takeaway messages that, that you would like to give following this, this podcast. Uh, yes, thank you. And uh, let me also say that, Sherry, thank you so much for uh, you know, I've learned so much through this discussion as well. Really, really, you know, uh, you know, mind blowing. Um, I want to use an analogy, uh, uh, the following analogy that, you know, a, a more general comment that firstly, it's important for those that are listening and uh, especially the children that we are all experiencing, we are all in a storm. We're experiencing the same storm regardless and the only difference is that we are sailing in different boats and sometimes it feels that you are you are in it alone because you can't see the others it's because of their solution so it feels others are maybe ahead of you or performing better than you no it's it's we've all been impacted so such thoughts are the ones that begin to affect you know us mentally and and as you know the physical uh, motivation is control, in, controlled by your, your mental status. So we should remember that we are all in this together and the night does not last forever. Daybreak is close. And, and may, you know, my encouragement is to ask you to hang in there, stay positive, continue to look forward to the, you know, and prepare for the day that, that is about to come because it's coming no matter how long this is going to last. So I just want to say it is really a mental you know, struggle. And I just want to thank you for this opportunity and uh, want to encourage everybody that we, 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 you know, we continue to stay positive. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Thank you very much, Charles. It's a, a powerful and impactful message for all of us, really. 
I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation today and I'd like to once again offer a huge note of thanks to our incredible guests, Dr. Sherry Blowett, Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School and Charles Nyambe, President and Managing Director of the Special Olympics for the Africa region. We hope that you'll join us next time for our sixth and final episode of the series where we'll look towards the future and beyond COVID-19 to discuss how to build back to a better future for children in sport. For more information on this series, please visit the Centre for Sport and Human Rights website at sporthumanrights.org and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Sport and Rights. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to next time.